Our next guest spent over 30 years in prison for one really bad mistake. He was the son of a single mom. He was in college, but there wasn't extra money to go around. He wanted to make some just like his wealthier friends. And so he, again, did a bad thing. He went on a road trip with some drug dealers. It turned violent. Two men were killed. But Alfonso wasn't even in the room when these murders took place. He was an accessory, faced the same potential sentence as the shooter. And after decades in prison, he finally got a break at clemency that would let him out of prison. And today he is making the most of a second chance by helping others to encourage governors to let people out on clemency. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. So I'd like to welcome Alfonso Riley to open mic. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much. So happy you're here. I've, I've read lots of stuff about you. Um, it, it's it's a heartbreaking story how how long you were in prison. But tell tell our listeners, tell our viewers about the day that changed your life. Uh, the day that. That particular day, uh, Mike, was literally the eve of my 19th birthday. You know, the, the next day I, I would have been 19. Like you said, I was a freshman uh, in college. I had opportunities and um, I made a very bad uh, decision to go um, hang out with some friends. I know that were, you know, still in the street that I knew from the neighborhood that um, that I used to live in. At the time, I was living on on college campus and um i knew they were doing i knew they were doing um things that really i should not have been uh doing and i saw the opportunity uh when when i heard about you know tra traveling from brooklyn up to upstate albany to sell drugs and um i you know asked to go along you know just just to uh like you said, to make a couple of uh, dollars. I was in, you know, college, a private college. Uh, I didn't have uh, money to like drive around college in the nice cars, like, you know, my roommates and friends had. So I thought that would provide the opportunity to do so. And um, it was a unfortunate, it was a horrific decision. Was this the first time you'd been involved in anything like that? Um. To, to, to that degree, yes, you know, I hung around, you know, guys who uh, did things. I know they, I knew they sold drugs. Did I sell, ever sell drugs myself? No, you know, um, that was my, you know, my uh, first arrest. So, you know, I was not experienced in the criminal justice system. I was, you know, not experienced uh, much with crime, but, um, like I said, that I, I came from a neighborhood 
that was, you know, where crime was rampant. So I knew it, I knew it existed. I, for lack of a better word, flirted with it by just, you know, being around, around those, you know, circles. I assume it's, it, it was probably sounded like easy money at the time. Yeah, it did. It I did. mean, you know, you're, you're going on a ride to transport, what was it? Marijuana? Was it? It was, it was cocaine. It was cocaine, crack cocaine. And I saw what, you know, other guys had who, you know, did it often. You know, those guys I had, you know, left in my uh, old neighborhood. And I just thought maybe if I did it once or more than twice, I might just have something and, you know, get in and get out. But that. And you, and you were the first person in your family to go to college. Yes. It's uh, you were at New York Institute of Technology. And, and I mean, I, I, from what I read, you're a good student, smart kid um, and made a dumb decision. So, so take us, take, take us through it. You, 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 were you the driver? Were you, why were you needed on this, uh, on this drug run? Well, just, uh, uh, I guess a show of support, um, backup, uh, uh, so to speak, just to not appear, not for, you know, those guys who appear alone. Um, and because it was a situation, if you, if one or two people appeared, you know, to be alone going up there, then, you know, they might've felt that they were going to be, uh, taken advantage of. So I was there just to show, uh, support muscle, so to speak. Were, were you armed? Um, well, I wasn't armed, no, but, uh, the vehicle that we went up in did not have guns, but someone had transported guns up on, uh, on the bus, the Greyhound. And we picked that person up, uh, at, at, at the bus station before we went to the, uh, drug safe house to make the deal. So. Tell me, tell me, tell me what happened. You were, I know you were on another, another level when, when these shootings happened. Uh, tell me what happened. Okay. If you can just picture, uh, you have a, a building, it was a two story building, but even to get to the first floor, you had to go up, uh, a flight of steps. So, I mean, it might've been three stories, so to speak. Um, and the apartment where the safe house was would have been on the second floor. I stayed on a, a on the first floor. Um, there was a, two of us went up to the second floor and um, went inside uh, the apartment. And like I said, I stayed downstairs. Probably about ten to fifteen minutes later, I I just I heard gunshots, and you know. I ran to, to the vehicle that, you know, we had uh, parked outside just to wait for, you know, the guys who were upstairs who, you know, came outside and we fled. You, What did you think when you heard gunshots? I mean, you, I mean, you're there to, to show some support. Uh, what, what went through your head? Well, um, you know, old expletive you know <laughs> yeah uh, you're allowed to swear on open mic we uh pride ourselves oh, in uh shit. swearing once in a while here okay so oh shit you know so um 
I didn't know that was going to happen. But, you know, I, I learned later that the situation upstairs had turned kind of antagonistic. It went from uh, um, to uh, what was supposed to be a drug sale to you guys aren't getting anything, you know, and uh, someone took the decision to uh, to shoot the two men who who were in there who we had come to see. So you fled, you went back to your houses, your apartments, I guess, right? Well, we didn't even get that far. Uh oh. Yeah, we didn't get that far because uh, apparently there was a uh, there was there was two men in the apartment who were killed, but there were a couple of people who survived and ran off and you know called the uh, police and um, gave descriptions of a uh, of a vehicle that we were in, that we were in the vehicle didn't match our vehicle but we were stopped on the new um new york state thruway headed back to the city just a stroke of luck on on the police's behalf they got the right vehicle although they had the wrong descri- description so, uh you know they stopped us and um, from then on we were in custody wow yeah. and uh I mean, how how fast did it move? I mean, how, when did you know that you were being charged with a felony murder? Uh, probably everything moved fast up there, especially for you know um, men who were uh, from New York City. We were being told pretty much by our attorneys that we we're going to be that the district attorney planned on making an example from uh, of us, and the court planned on making an example of us that you had New York City kids coming up to Albany, New York in their community and committing murder. So everything moved fast. In New York City, the typical homicide might go to trial after a year and a half, two years. We went to uh, trial in six months in, 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 in Albany. Everything happened the same year. The, the crime, the sentence, the crime, the conviction, and the sentence all within 1988. You know, so that's light speed compared to like New York. And, you know, I, I read through your story and, and uh, on open mic, we've had 10 exonerees who've been wrongfully convicted um, and, and later exonerated. Yours is kind of, it's a different type of story. It's, it's, you know, uh, the fact that you weren't in the room, they charge you with a, a statute called felony murder, which is, is, is no longer in a lot of States like Michigan, uh, because it's so harsh, um, but yours yours isn't like that. It doesn't sound like you've ever denied your involvement, or have you? Tell you you tell me. Have you ever denied that you were uh, that you were present and what your involvement was? Well, um, to be prefer- perfectly honest, probably at the pre-trial stages, um, I I denied. Um, being willing to go up there to sell drugs. But as, you know, things went along and I just began to accept responsibility um, for my role in being willing to, you know, participate in this drug that uh, planned drug sale, then I, I, I accepted that role. And, you know, for the most part, you know, um, that's, that's, that's what it was. 
it ter- unfortunately turned into an incident with two you know young men were killed and like you said i was charged with a felony murder and i was sentenced you know as if uh, i committed the homicidal acts which felony murder allows one to sentence so you know i was uh, at that time i was 19 years old um the judge sentenced me to 71 and two-thirds years to life wow which was essentially a, a death set a death sentence you know where i did not commit the homicidal act by all accounts and you know and felony murder allowed him uh to do that um probably did the, did the trigger uh, man um get the same exact sentence no, he got, um, believe it or not, he got even more. He got uh, even more, and that, and he he received more because he was. Um, this wasn't his first, um, you know, brush with the law. You know, this he was being sentenced as a second felony offender, which allowed him to get a little more than I received. And. So, I mean, it's, in, it's interesting as, as we're going through these. So the, the trial was, you know, you had a, did you have a jury trial? Yes. And they convicted you as well as all of the uh, other participants? Yes. Everyone was convicted uh, of, uh, for varying degrees of involvement, but everyone was convicted. Um, the person that had um, probably the least conviction was a person, the, the guy he said, they, uh, he was only the driver. He stayed. He stayed uh, outside as well, but he um, his defense was that he didn't know anything. He was just hired to drive. Right. So, and his and his lawyer pretty much, you know, made a good defense of that, as he you know was able to kind of push blame on everybody else and had you know his client appear as the unwitting participant. You know, I'm not a criminal defense attorney, but I remember in law school, which was a long time ago, learning about felony murder and it was a bizarre statute. And I didn't do any research for today's show about felony murder, but, but my memory is, you know, it was used as a deterrent from being even a bit part in a crime. Right. You know, if you drove somebody to a fire, to light, they wanted to light a ho- an empty house on fire, and that empty house had a person in it, and that person was killed. The driver gets the same sentence or gets the same charges as the person who intentionally lit the fire. And even if the person said, "I I was only trying to burn down the house. I didn't want to kill anybody. I didn't want to hurt anybody." But somebody was in there. That's like a felony murder type situation. That's just a weird example that came to me. It has nothing to do with you, but right. I'm trying to illustrate for our listeners yeah, and viewers. I, Does that sound about right? Yes, that, that is. I, I can give you another example. One I just read about uh, today, uh, Mike, it was a situation, a uh, case in Alabama where a 15-year-old uh, kid, him and you know, uh, one or two other friends went and they burglarized a couple of homes and the police came and the police you know, chased them and the police shot the friend, one of the one of the perpetrators in the crime. And the surviving defendant 
um, was sentenced as, as a 15-year-old when the case happened. He was sentenced to 65 years for the homicide that the, with the police called, wow. where the police shot his friend under wow. felony murder. So he, and although they didn't have, I mean, it was clear and admitted clear that the police shot the friend, but the law allowed for him to be charged with his friend's murder as if he did it. And he was sentenced as to 65 years. Yep. It's a nut statute, isn't it? Yeah. So your sentence is 71 years. You're coming right from college, probably a, a, a decent dorm at a good university. I mean, the, the change, I mean, I mean, can you even describe going from a college campus the next week you're in jail uh, and then prison for 30 plus years. I mean, can you try to describe that for us? I guess to say is a culture shock is an understatement, you know, but I'll say that for lack of a better description right now. Um, it, it, it was it was definitely something, you know, for um, somebody at my age at the time. Um, didn't know what was going on. Um, and somewhere in my mind, I believed I would, you know, uh, make it back. In fact, Mike, when I was arrested, um, I thought, I mean, I had my school books with me. I had my, actually had my knapsack because I thought that after we made this deal, I would make it to the uh, class that I had that evening. You know, so, you know, that's wow. that what was going on. That but, is, uh, that's bizarre. Yeah. So, I mean, I, sad. Uh, that's really sad, too. You know, I, you know, was arrested and, and convicted in, in prison, one of the, you know, more violent maximum security prisons in, in New York at the time, you know, where it was loosely uh, termed a gladiator school because of the number of cuttings and stabbings that went on on a daily basis. So, you know, I uh, went there and um, I just made the best out of a, you know, bad situation. You know, I told myself that I was going to do the time and not the time, not let the time do me as I fought, you know, fight to kind of lessen my sentence or appeal my sentence in some way. Well, it's interesting you said that because one of the things that I noted when I was um, reading your history and, 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 and researching for this interview was the um, was all of the things that you did while in prison. I mean, you, you know, you basically thought it was a death sentence um, and it very well could have been. Um, and you, you got a associate's degree, you got a bachelor's degree, you got a paralegal degree, you earned data processing certificates. Uh, you worked in the law library. You volunteered in the children's center. You spoke to young people. And one of the more fascinating things is that you became a chess champion so to say you made the most of your time is an understatement really i mean that's that's really unusual um wouldn't you say yes i mean for the most part i i you know looking back at it i i i i, I will admit that at the time you know that was my life 
uh, it allowed me to uh, cope, especially, you know, you know, doing things that think that were a little more um, positive and, you know, conducive to my own development. Yeah. Are you, so, all, the only thing you're missing there is a law degree. The only thing I'm missing is a law degree. I'm working on that now. Don't lie to me. Are you really? Yeah. yeah. Are you in law school? No, 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 no. I'm studying for the LSAT now. Congratulations. Wow. That's exciting. Yes. Well, if you ever need a job and you want to come to Detroit, let me know. Okay. Um, that's that's really impressive. Really impressive. Um, let's talk about the uh let's talk about the uh the chess champion. I mean, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but but uh, you learned how to play chess while in prison. Did you ever play before that? Well, I learned how to play chess good while in prison. I learned how to make the moves and you know how to move the pieces move while I was home. But I was never really good at it. Who taught you? Um a guy in the neighborhood. The guy just, you know, you want to play chess? Hey, yeah, you seem like a thinker. You're a smart guy. You should learn how to play chess. Who taught you how to play good? Oh in prison. Um, pretty much myself. I read the books. I bought the books. I, you know, read the book. I learned chess notation. I read the books. I studied the books back and forth. I would lay out the chess board, you know, and just uh, go through go through the books, go through puzzles. What was your uh, what was your what's your standard opening move? Uh, well, on defense, I like the Sicilian, right? And um, uh, on, when if I'm playing offense, white, I might. You know, start basically if I'm playing basic Gialco piano. Um, and what do you uh, think about the Queen's Gambit? Well, I, yeah, I did watch the Queen's Gambit, and isn't that a know, move, the Queen's Gambit? Yes, it is a move. Yes, yes I was yes. trying to sound smart and, and pretend yes. like I knew what that meant, yes. but I don't know what that means. But I know it's a move, and I did watch the show too. What did you think of the show? The show was good. The show was good, and and it kind of reminded me of how. Um, obsessed, you know, a person can get with uh, chess, and it's you know while playing chess, I kind of stayed away from that a lot because you know I played was you know referred to as correspondence chess a lot, you know, with people around the country, and we literally made moves by sending you know through postcard. Right? So come on, wait, 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 <laughs> through the mail. This is your move. This is your move. And it take weeks in between moves? U.S. Postal Service. It usually takes a, about a week going and coming, right, on 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 a postcard, you know, those old-fashioned things, yes. And you would keep a, a the, the, the game board in your cell? Yeah, we, you, keep a, you keep the board, but I played maybe like six games at a time. So you would have um, a pad with the notations of each move for where you're at in each game. So you could reset it up if you need to. Exactly. And wow. what, what happens is at some point, probably usually midway through or probably around the sixth to eighth move, you already know in your head each game, how each game is set up, right? And I might wake up in the middle of the night in the shower and say, oh, that's okay. If this person does this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then I might set the board up um, real quick to see if that, see if it plays out that way or i might be in the shower and come up with things like that so i say had to say that obsession that 
depicted in Queen's Gambit that can, you know, come come true. It's really interesting. Are you still playing? Not as much as I did, but I'm I'm still playing more more computer. Have you have you won a, have you ever you know played in a championship or or won anything? Yeah, yeah. I won a couple of trophies. Um, mainly in, in a certificate in U.S. Chess Federation um, sponsored tournaments. That's great. That is great. All right, let's talk about let's talk about your clemency. Um, and for our listeners and viewers who don't know the difference between a pardon and a and clemency, do you want to do you want to take a stab at that? Since uh, you're probably an expert at it. Okay. There's uh with with clemency, there's something called a commutation of sentence, right? Which is what I receive. And a commutation of sentence is when um, the governor recognizes um, that um, while incarcerated, you attain what's referred to as extraordinary achievements. And he wants to commute your sentence or reduce your sentence to make you immediately uh, eligible for parole. And that's a, a a form a type of a clemency, and that's the type of clemency that I received. So at the time when my sentence was commuted or reduced, um, I had uh thirty years in, and um, you know, this decision was made by Governor New York, Governor Cuomo, and um. I was informed of that decision on in 2018, New Year's Eve, the day before, you know, when turned 2019. And that was just like the day that I was waiting for, you know. So so how did you get the governor's attention? I, I read some statistics. He's got about 7,000 clemency petitions sitting on his desk just for New York right. prisoners. Right. Um, he's only let out less than 20. Right. How did you get his attention? So I became eligible to um, file for clemency in 2013. And one becomes eligible when he gets, he she gets half of his sentence in. Uh, and half of it was uh, 2013 when I had 25 years in. Oh, let me and re reduce it because initially we said I was sentenced to 71 years to life, right? Now that sentence was reduced by the appeals court in New York to 50 years to life. So for the, you know, the majority of my sentence, I served, uh, I was being sentenced to 50 years um, to life. And when appellate court made that decision, to reduce the sentence to 50 years to life from 71 years, they didn't do so because that I was a first time uh, felony offender or because I was a college student when it occurred or because I was only 18 or 19 years old that it occurred or, or that I was trying to do something about my life. They were, all of that was ignored. Um, they reduced it because they said that the judge erroneously ran some of the sentences uh, consecutive, right? So they ran the sentences concurrent, and when they ran it concurrent, it came to fifty years uh, to life. Uh, so, right. 
So uh, in 2013, when I had half of that time in, um, I applied for clemency and I did, I did that myself, right? So the request sat in the governor's office for four years without being answered from 2013 to 2017. And in 2017, I got a decision saying uh, from the governor's office saying, well, you're not, uh, we're not gonna consider it at this time. Um, try again next year in the year. So um, what I decided to do when preparing for the second application to get assistance. So I was writing around to um, different law firm, legal organizations, what have you, to ask you know, um, for some help for someone who might make or you know, present a better package for me, make a better request, a pitch to the governor's office. And um, the, um, there's a program at CUNY Law School, you know, run by um, Professor uh, Steve Zeidman and some, you know, some other law professors. Where they have a clemency clemency clinic there, and they agreed to help me. And they assigned two wonderful law students to assist me and you know the team just put together a great package they interviewed me they did a video interview they uh called a uh, clinical psychologist who came in and interviewed me for a couple of days to do what's referred to as a risk assessment and you know uh to determine that if released would what um, risk that I pose to society, and that clinical psychologist, well, her conclusion was ultimately that I pose, you know, the least risk than any person she ever, you know, interviewed. So, you know, all of that became part of the clemency package, yeah. and also one other uh, fact that they found out. Uh, while investigating this whole case is that the judge who sentenced us, you know, to all of that time had a competition with the only other criminal judge in that court, because there was only two of them, and two of them had a competition on who would give out the most time before they retired. And, yeah, I read about, I read, I read about that. That is the most, uh, insane sick sickening thing that i i've heard in a long time yeah. so the so the two criminal judges in the courthouse had a contest maybe a bet maybe they they, they treated it like a game yeah. how much who could give more time than right. the other guy and they had some kind of contest right i've never heard of this before and so this became public. The judges knew about it or the court of appeals judges. People commented on this. This is in briefs, right? Well, this is, this is well, not just rumor. This is not rumor. When the, uh, when the, the, uh, the, my assistants from CUNY began to look in it, they interviewed the actual disc attorney of my trial at my trial, the assistant disc attorney, as well as my tri trial attorney. And both of them said, yeah, that was common knowledge. 
So yeah, we know you know going on. That was that was common knowledge, but at that time nobody, you know, sought to kind of ruffle the feathers, so to speak. Uh, and there, there, and, and I, I assume, and I don't know this, but I'm going to make a guess that they've never been disciplined. They're probably still both on the bench, or maybe they've they're died by now because it's been a long time. But yeah. uh, they were never disciplined or anything no. like that. No, there's no. very, very. I mean, I don't know the statistics, but judges, as dirty as some may or may not be, as prosecutors, as dirty as they some of it may be, the the holding them accountable is nearly impossible. They are immune and uh, it's, it's reprehensible. I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. And I'm sorry they were your judges. And I don't know what a normal fair judge would have sentenced you, but it sure sounds like it would have been less. So you had some great people who got the judges, uh, who got the the governor's attention. You get this news on new year's Eve. What, a celebration. I mean, I'm sure you didn't have much champagne in prison, but I'm sure you wish you did. You wish you had it. Yes. That, that is very exciting. So it hasn't been, it's been what, two, two and a half years. It hasn't even been that long. Yeah. yeah. And, and you found out, and then I heard you had to wait four weeks in prison until they finally let you out, even though you, the, the governor said, let them out. Right. Right. That had to been excruciating. Very long four weeks. Very long four weeks. Without not without knowing what was going on, you know the only thing I, I um, was called and you know uh, and the news was given to me by the the warden was referred to as the superintendent in New York of the prison and uh, read the uh, email from the governor's office and that was it. The uh, the only other thing you know I would hear things from the uh, that was going on in the media or the news about it, but it was like prison staff. Nobody had, oh, nobody had anything to say more, more about it. When I would be released, I really didn't know until probably like the day before, just when I was going to be released. And you've been out two and a half years. Tell me what you've been doing. What are you up to? How's how's life? Life is good. Life is good. You know, we, uh, on the way, on the way out, I said, uh, you know, the worst day out here is far better than the best day inside, you know? So, you know, it's, it's like, I often find myself have a very different, um, percept, uh, idea of things or perception than, you know, my, my friends who've never experienced what I've experienced because I sometimes, you know, when we, we might face challenges or complications on this side and just think, you know, things can be worse. You know? Ab- a- absolutely. And, and so tell me, how, what are you, what are you doing to keep busy now? Well, um, I work at, I'm a paralegal case handler at in the legal aid society of New York. I work you know, in the wrongful conviction unit, and we 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 um, look at cases, we investigate cases of you know possible uh, wrongful convictions, and through that investigation, hope to uh, work towards exonerating people. It's you know, fabulous. Any success so far? Yes, we have. We've had a couple of successes. We're a new unit, 
actually I was like one of the first hired of the unit. The unit just started in um, May of 2019. In fact, and um, we've had a success um, case uh, of uh, well, the client's name, Carlos Weeks, another one of James Davis, you know, and we working on many more that we have in our queue. What a, what a perfect job for you. I mean, how lucky are these guys to have you looking at their cases, someone who cares, someone, when you get that letter saying I'm innocent, what, what, what a better person than you to look at that and take it seriously and research it. I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed. Um, I also heard that you got married while in prison in 2014 and not knowing if you would ever get, if you were ever going to get out. Right. You got right. married in 2014 and, and you're still married and you're living with your wife now. Yes. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Man. That That's really, uh, that's really exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that things are going well for you. Well, I well, listen, I wish you the best of luck in law school. And, uh, if you ever, want to bring one of uh, your exonerees on open mic and do an interview and get some publicity for the great work you guys are doing and to teach the public about the, about the ills of our criminal justice system and what happens when people get wrongfully convicted or where there's a bad lineup or there's a bad ID or there's a bad judge or prosecutor. That's, that's the stuff we do here. And I'd love to have you back on the show. Okay. Thanks. I'll look to take you up on that. Anytime. Anytime. Well, it was super nice to meet you and uh, keep in touch. All right. Thanks so much. What a nice guy, Alfonso Riley. Uh, really I'm impressed with what he did in prison and, and, and look how it's serving him now. The fact that he's out and he's, he's working on the legal aid society, going to law school, married, um, you know, that's, it's, uh, that part of it's a, it's a good story. So if you know anybody who needs to hear a show like this, uh, who'd be moved by this, who's maybe dealing with something similar, send them this podcast, subscribe, like comment, let us know the types of things you'd like to hear on open mic. And we really appreciate you listening and watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time.